Psalms. We've been going here pretty regularly and looks like we may for a while. There's an awful lot here for us to consider, to learn, and to be edified by within the Psalms. We came down to chapter 53 last time. We are going through in these Psalms the history of man, really. Uh, It has repeated itself over and over and over again. So in the life of the psalmists, uh, there were several, David being the primary one, uh, we see the plight of man, the difficulties of mankind in living on this earth as human beings. Uh, It is echoed through Christ's life on this earth because many, many of his thoughts and feelings as he lived and was tortured and died were expressed in the Psalms, and he said that they were direct quotes about him. And indeed, as we live now in the dying throes of man's existence prior to Christ's return on this earth, we see the same difficulties, the same human problems being repeated. And we see the same problems within the church itself that mankind has suffered through all this time. So let's go into 53 and see that we are in the same plight today that we had back then. The fool has said in his heart, there is no God. We have a prevailing theory today that there is evolution, that there really is no God, that it all just developed from sea slime. And I don't know where the slime in the water came from. Had to come from somewhere, but we won't get into all that. But it is foolish to say that there is no God. And he says, The heavens declare his glory. And Romans 1 reiterates that we see him through the creation around us. Corrupt are they, and have done abominable iniquity. There is none that does good. Humans are humans. And we shall see that even we are not good. We can go to quite a few scriptures about the human heart being deceitful and desperately wicked. Who can know it? Uh, we can see scriptures in the New Testament about such. Was Where is a good man? They're hard to find. Solomon even attested that he could find no good woman and only one good man. And I'm sure the good man was he himself. Uh, He assessed it that way. There were no good men and no good women except perhaps himself. I think that is implied there. God looked down from heaven upon the children of men to see if there were any that did understand that did seek God. Now remember, he had done that back in the days of Noah. And he says their, their minds, their hearts are evil continually. And he looked down and he said, I'm just going to destroy them all. But he found within Noah a man who at least was seeking and trying and working at being what he ought to be and that had a worship of God in mind, even though he himself was imperfect. But he said, for the sake of Noah, I will save them. And he started over, didn't he? And now here at the end, 
He says that it is the same way, and that unless he intervenes and cuts this time short that he has allotted for mankind, there would no flesh be saved alive. And here again, he said for the very elect's sake that he would do that. So even as the days of Noah, we've come down to the same situation where there are only a few who are even trying, much less fully accomplishing. Even those who understand and who are trying fall very short of the mark as human beings, and we heard about that in the sermonette. It does seem to me, over the last few weeks and months for that matter, that God has been inspiring all the speakers to hone in on the idea that none of us are righteous, and if we try to vaunt ourselves above others or esteem ourselves above anyone else, that we are self-righteous. And that that self-righteousness has to be stripped away. Where we do not, from our perspective, look down on anyone else, any other human being. How can we afford that when every one of us is essentially flawed to the core? So how can the pot call the kettle black? And that's not a racist term. I, we could say... How did the fox get in the hen house or something else? Because there's nothing wrong with black or brown or yellow or any other color. I don't know whether that phrase came from some racist beginning, but it should not be used at all in that sense. It's just how can we, with sin, put down anyone else who has sin? There is no room for that. And to have the love of God, we have to put aside those judgments, those feelings, those thoughts that allow us to think that someone, other human being, is lesser than we are. That is why it is not wise for ourselves to compare ourselves among ourselves. He goes on to say, there's none that really understand or seek God. Every one of them has gone back. They're altogether become filthy. Filthy. There is none that does good. No, not one. Is that all inclusive? That there is no good human being? Have the workers of iniquity no knowledge? who eat up my people as they eat bread, they have not called upon God. Well, what about even his people? I want to go into this a little bit. Let's go to Matthew 19. We'll be back here, but I, I want to explore a few scriptures here. Because this is critical for us to grasp. <clears throat> Matthew 19, and go down to verse 16. And behold, one came and said to him, Good master, what good thing shall I do that I may have eternal life? Now this person had assessed himself as being a good person. He, in his own mind, had always obeyed the laws of God, as we shall see. But he called Christ good master. Now took, Christ took umbrage at that immediately. He said to him, Why call you me Good. 
There is none good but one, that is, God. And if you will enter into life, keep the commandments. Now, did Christ lie? Right here. There is a great deal of prejudice among Catholics and Protestants who thought that their Jesus was good, that he was not a partaker of human nature. Now, he himself said, Don't call me good. And the implication there is, and it's not just an implication, he said it in so many words, virtually, I am not good. Now, he had never sinned. He had never done anything wrong. But he said, I am not good. Why do you call me good? Only one is good, and that is God. Now, how do we understand this? The world assumes, or the Protestant or religious world, or Christian world, I might say, that Christ was good, and yet we have a very plain statement that he made, that he was not, but that his father was. Now, let's look at this open-mindedly, not from our Catholic or Protestant roots, but from the true aspect of Scripture and some very plain statements made in the Bible. Christ was not God while he was on this earth. He was flesh, and he was blood. And his flesh was stripped from him, and his blood was drained on the ground, and he died. He no longer existed. The dead know nothing. He was not a spirit or a ghost or an apparition somewhere during that three days. He was dead. The Father was alone without His only begotten Son. There is an argument that rages within Christianity on was He God walking the earth? Was He man? Or was He a combination of both? Now, what does God's Word say? Because that is all that really matters. Now, he said here he was not good. Well, if he was not good, then what was he? He was human. And with being human, he had human nature. He no longer had the nature of God. Now, God's nature is always uplifting. God's nature is always good. It is always positive. It is always up. Human nature is essentially down. That is why it has to be fought day in and day out. And anyone who thinks they are good or see someone else they think might be good, they don't have all their facts. Because we are not good by nature. 
the human heart is deceitful and desperately wicked. And we need to understand that Christ had human nature. Let's go on, not just take my word for that, and please don't get your back up with those statements I've made, because I am going henceforth to show you and to prove what has just been said. You can see the same thing in parallel accounts in Mark 10, verse 18, and Luke 18, and verse 19. So he's telling this young rich man, you may think you've kept the commandments, but you truly haven't, even though you assess yourself that way. And he proved it to him very quickly. Go ahead, give everything you have away. And it became very obvious that he had broken the first commandment. He put his money ahead of God, even though he thought he had been keeping the commandments. And we can deceive ourselves so very easily into thinking that we're okay. And the whole church at the end time has basically bought into that. That's why he speaks of Laodiceanism in the end time. Because we bought into the idea that we as the church of God were okay. And we would be saved if we would just get our ticket to Petra. And how wrong that has proved to be. That was stinking thinking. We've already read in Psalm 14.3, there is none good, no not one. And we encounter it again here in Psalm 53, in verse 3. Let's go to Romans. and See if the New Testament writers had something to add, not only to what was written in the Old Testament as true and prophetic, but to add to what Christ himself said and what we have just read. You know, sometimes we tend to allow our backgrounds and past teachings to color our thinking to the point we will simply not believe plain, straightforward statements made in God's Word. These are not statements, for the most part, that are subject to uh, mistranslation or wrong word usage, or are difficult to be understood, as Peter said some things Paul wrote were. They are simple, plain statements. And we have to be willing to get rid of some of our background teachings and even our feelings of what is logical to us about God, and especially about Christ Himself. Well, let's go to... Romans 3, and pick this up uh, verse 9. Speaking, he's speaking here in context about the Jews. He says, what then? Because they had some of the oracles or the sayings or the writings of God. What then? Are we better than they? He was a spiritual Jew. He was in the church. He, would been, he had been born a Benjamite. But he was in the church, so he had become a spiritual Jew, not a Benjamite. So he said, because we understand the truth and are spiritual Jews, are we better than the physical Jews? Now, what had Christ said about the physical Jews? Serpents, snakes, their leaders, open sepulchers, and on and on and on. 
So, the Jews of his day and their leaders were unrighteous, and there was none righteous among them, no, not one. So he said, are we then, as spiritual Jews or church members, better than they? No, in no wise. We're not better than anyone else on the face of the earth, just because we understand and are trying to serve God. We are still what? Human. We still fight human nature daily. It is not easy to be a human being. No and no wise, for we have before proved, both Jews and Gentiles, that they are all under sin. It doesn't matter who you are, or even if we, the church, as it is written, there is none righteous, no, not one. Well, that was written in Psalm 14, 3, and in chapter 53, as we just read. There is none that understands, there is none that seeks after, all, after God. They are all gone out of the way. They are together become unprofitable. There is none that does good, no, not one. Then it talks about the open sepulcher and how our mouths get us in trouble and so on and so forth. So he's saying again to the church at Rome that there is none good, no, not one. Now let's go to 1 John 4. Here is one that has been said is uh, not written exactly correctly. And I can see how it could be taken either way. 1 John 4. Beloved, believe not every spirit, but try the spirits, whether they are of God, because many false prophets are gone out into the world. Hereby know you the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Emmanuel the Christ is coming or come in the flesh is of God. And every spirit that confesses not that Jesus Christ is come in the flesh is not of God. This is the spirit of Antichrist. Now, do we believe that he came in the flesh? The Catholics would even tell you that Mary is an object of worship. And they still worship her today, even though she's dead and buried. They think she's sitting in heaven somewhere. Did he come in the flesh? Now, we have said this could, should be in the tense of coming in the flesh, that he's coming and dwelling in us. And that is certainly true. But there is a segment of Catholicism and Protestantism that doesn't even believe he was flesh when he was here. And the argument rages on. It's even raged within the church. Now, is John touching on something here that is important? Second John 7. For many deceivers are entered into the world who confess not that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh. This is a deceiver and an antichrist. And it could well be that both statements are correct. He did come in the flesh as flesh, but he also comes and dwells in us and in our minds, and we are flesh. Now let's see if that is borne out by some other scriptures. Let's go to 1 Peter 4. We need to grasp that there is none good, no, not one. And even Christ said of himself, I am not good. 
Again, was he lying to that young rich man? And that he really was good, he was just being humble. Or was he saying that correctly? 1 Peter 4, let's begin in verse 1. For as much then as Christ has suffered for us in the flesh. He suffered in the flesh. He was flesh. He was not spirit walking around. 1 Corinthians 15. That which is flesh is flesh, and that which is spirit is spirit. So he was not spirit when he was on the earth. He was flesh. That's why he could suffer and die, because that's what he was. So, when he was in the flesh, he suffered for us. Arm yourselves likewise with the same mind, for he that has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. We must learn in our flesh, by our mistakes and our sufferings, to cease from sin. And he learned what? Obedience. We'll read that. By what he suffered. Obedience did not come naturally to Christ. He learned by the things which he suffered. Learned obedience. Do we understand that he did not automatically obey? That his nature was not always uplifting? He had a fight on his hands, day in and day out. Now, someone might say and have, well, let's not miss the point that he lived a perfect life. And therefore, he's our Savior. We're not missing that point, believe me. But we need to grasp the conditions under which he never sinned. And never made error. And those conditions were that he was flesh and that he had human nature. He did not have at that point the nature of God because he was made flesh. If he had had still the nature of God and had been God, then what's the point? What did he fight? If he was not tempted at all points, as we are, what did he have to fight? I have had people tell me that he did not have temptation like we do. Now, that is an absolute denial of a very plain statement. Because of our human logic or our Catholic or Protestant background and some of those teachings. It denies much of what he did for us. Because he had to live under the same circumstances we live under, or else it really did not mean what it means. Let's go on and see that in Scripture. I'm just quoting and talking here, but I want, I want us to see that. 
Let's go on here in chapter 4 of 1 Peter for a little bit, though. Verse 2, that he no longer should live the rest of his time in the flesh to the lusts of men, but to the will of God. Well, we are human, and the lusts of the flesh are always there. For the time past of our life may suffice us to have worked the will of the Gentiles when we walked in lawlessness, lusts, excess of wine, revelings, banquetings, and abominable idolatries. Wherein they think it strange that you run not with them to the same excess of riot, speaking evil of you. If we try to go God's way, then the people around us are going to put us down because we don't live a life of carnality and sin and self-gratification that they live. And it is not easy for us, is it? It is not easy to fight our nature and to be selfish and to want what we cannot have. Sometimes the truth hurts. It hurts to realize that we all suffer temptation and trial and difficulty and we make mistakes. And it's easy for us to point out others' mistakes. Just like the world will put us down. Verse 5 They speak evil of you, who shall give account to him that is ready to judge the quick and the dead. We are those who are under judgment now from God. For for this cause was the gospel preached also to them that are dead, that they might be judged according to men in the flesh, but live according to God in the Spirit. But the end of all things is at hand. Now this was written, and they thought that... Christ would return in their lifetime, and later on they realized he would not. But it is even more true today than it was when Peter wrote it. Now, the end of all things is at hand. (coughs) Be you therefore sober, and watch to prayer. Now, he gives us some very good advice then in verse 8. And above all things. Above any and everything. Prophecy, knowledge, on and on, 1 Corinthians 13. Above all things, have fervent love among yourselves. For love shall cover the multitude of sins. God's love and sending His Son is there to cover our sins. But he has said, and we have pointed out repeatedly, not me, but we, from the Bible, that we have to come to have this kind of fervent love among ourselves. And that we have no right to pick and choose to whom we will have it. We are to love even our enemies and those who despitefully use us and persecute us. But we should not feel persecuted and misused, because within that comes self-righteousness. Because we puff ourselves up and say, I'm okay, you're the problem. And that is our downfall, because we all have done it and do it. So this has to be fervent love, And it will cover the multitude of sins, including ours. 
Because if we forgive others and are merciful on others, then ours also will be forgiven and we will be extended mercy. Now, if there is any one problem that stands towering above all other problems within the church of God today and within our own little group here, it would be that the fervent love of God, His kind of love, is not as great as it should be. And therefore, we pick at one another and we put down one another and we adjudge others lesser than we by our judgments. This is the basis of most of our relationship problems because we do not have the agape, fervent love of God to the degree that we need it. And our own selfishness and self-love and love of family and friends comes out ahead of loving all our brethren and our enemies fervently. God so loved those dirty, stinking, rotten, sinful human beings that He gave His only begotten Son that all flesh might have opportunity to be in the kingdom of God. That's the kind of love he has. No sinner is so great that he cannot be forgiven if he will but repent. Notice verse 13. But rejoice inasmuch as you are partakers of Christ's sufferings, that when His glory shall be revealed, you may be glad also with exceeding joy. Now, we are partakers with His sufferings. He did suffer while He was on this earth. Now, let's go to Hebrews 2. I think we need to understand Christ more, and we need to understand ourselves in the light of Christ more, if we are to become what we need to be. We have been called to be kings and priests. We have been called to be examples to the world, now and in the millennium. And we need to perform in order for God to confer that upon us. Now, it's difficult and it's hard. Yes, it is to live the standard of God and to treat each other as potential gods rather than as, well, I know him or I know her. I know how that person is. We cannot allow ourselves to go there. We have to view each other as potential kings and priests in the kingdom of God. And give each other that allowance and that opportunity. We heard a lot about this in the sermonette today. Well, here in Hebrews 2, let's understand more about Christ. Go down to verse 17. Well, let's, no, let's, uh, where did I want to start here? I want to go before that. Verse 14. For as much then as the children are partakers of flesh and blood, Even as we, the children, 
are partakers of flesh and blood. That's what we are. That which is flesh is flesh, that which is spirit is spirit, okay? He also himself, he also himself, likewise took part of the same. He was a partaker of flesh and blood, just as we are. Now, there are arguments that rage about whether he was really a man or not. And they're answered by some very simple, direct statements in the Bible. Now, I'm not putting Christ down. He did live a perfect life. He never once sinned. But I want us to grasp and understand that he was not God, not spirit, when he walked the earth. And therefore, the conditions under which he lived were the same as which under which we live. The conditions were the same and therefore the temptations were the same. And it makes him even more glorified that he could resist being a human being of flesh and blood. Not God just come down to walk on the earth. And that's what this says. He took part of the same. That through death, only flesh and blood can die. He was not God anymore. God cannot die. He gave up. God, or being God, and became flesh and blood so that he could die like every other human being. And not only could he, he did. That through death he might destroy him that had the power of death, that is, the devil. The devil leads us to sin. He tempts us to sin. Now, it's easy for us to say, well, so-and-so's got a demon problem, or so-and-so is afflicted with demons. Don't you realize we all are? In some cases, it might be a little more evident, but we all are. Keep your finger here just a moment and flip back to Ephesians 5. Verse 10, finally, my brethren, be strong in the eternal and in the power of his might. We only have strength and we only have power in God, not in ourselves. For we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this world, against spiritual wickedness in high places. We all. Not a few of us, not one of us. We all wrestle against Satan and demons. It is in the culture of mankind around the globe. It has been there since the Garden of Eden. Adam and Eve were influenced by Satan. Wherefore, take to you the whole armor of God, that you may be able to withstand in the evil day, having done all to stand. And then he talks about those things 
and how we have to quench the fiery darts of the wicked one, it should be, in verse 16. Because Satan goes about as a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour. So let's realize that as human beings on this earth, every one of us wrestles daily against Satan, and Satan has an influence on every one of us. Our thought patterns, our temptations, our difficulties, he's always there, prince of the power of the air. We can either buy into his spirit in the air or into God's spirit. God's spirit is not given in measure, as mentioned in the sermonette, but I think the overall understanding of that is it's not given in measure. We have access to the whole power of God. We have access to the mind of God. We have access to every word of God. The problem is we quench the Spirit. We utilize it in a small way, but it is available to us without measure in a great way. It is we who quench it, who shut it down and shut it off because of our nature and the nature of Satan around us. It's available in great power. Even with the grain of mustard seed type of faith, you could move mountains because not of our power, but the power of God. Now let's go back to Hebrews 2. Verse 16. For truly, now truly, get this, he took not on him the nature of angels. He was not God anymore. And he did not even have the nature of the angels. But he took on him the seed of Abraham. Abraham was all flesh. And that is the nature that Christ took on. Not of God, not of angels, but of human nature. He was not half God and half man, as some subscribe. He took on the nature of man. And he was subject to all that man is, that you and I are. Wherefore, in all things, not some, not a few, all things, it behooved him to be made like his brethren. He was just like us in all ways. Not a few ways. Always. That's why his living a perfect life is such an absolutely incredible thing. Not just that he did it, but the conditions under which he did it. He was just like you and me in all things. That he might be a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God to make reconciliation for the sins of the people. For in that he himself has suffered being tempted that he is able to succor or strengthen or help them that are tempted, that would be us. 
What an incredible statement this is by Paul, who was taught three and a half years directly, personally in the desert by the Christ he is speaking of here. We need to get rid of Catholicism and Protestantism and realize what an incredible thing it was that he did under the same conditions that we live. His mind was a human mind. He had human nature. And therefore, by nature, he wanted to sin. He desired to sin. He fought against sin daily, just like you and me. And the difference is, he never gave in. Let's realize he was human. When he was born, he started peeing and pooping his pants. Do we realize that? That he walked the earth, he ate, he drank. He was called a wine-bibber. He drank wine. That's against our Protestant teaching, too. He was human. In all points, like as we are. That's why he could say, I am not good. He had been good when he was at his father's side before he gave up goodness, eternal life, and immortality. And when he was born on this earth as a human being with human nature, he was no longer good by nature. He had to fight his nature, which was to lust and covet and sin. And he had to stay close to the Father to keep from doing it. We can understand him better then by examining ourselves and seeing what a fight we have and realize he went through it just like we do. All points. He's, he was made like us in all points. Do we believe that? That's a pure, simple statement that is not difficult to understand or read. Just a statement of God. Do we believe God or not? Do we believe Christ's own words to the young rich man or do we not? Oh, he really was good. He was just saying this to be humble. No, he wasn't. He was making a statement of fact. There was only one good at that point, and that was God. Even the angels are subject to sin. And he was made lower than the angels. He was subject to sin. Two-thirds of the angels didn't sin, but a third did. They had that capacity. And they gave in after Satan did. Now let's go to Hebrews 4. Paul's on a roll here. Verse 13. 
Well, yeah, neither is there any creature that is not manifest in God's sight, but all things are naked and open to the eyes of him with whom we have to do. The Father did not even understand in quite the same way that Christ did after he lived on this earth what human nature really is. That is why he is such an incredible high priest and mediator for us today. And that he says, Father, I get it. I understand what that one is going through. Please have mercy. I'm thankful he had to withstand everything I have faced and not always withstood. And I need mercy. And you do too. Seeing then, verse 14, that we have a great high priest that is passed into the heavens, Jesus or Emmanuel, the Son of God, let us hold fast our profession. He's not here anymore. He's there, okay? For we have not an high priest which cannot be touched with the feeling of our infirmities. He felt our infirmities. He lived with the feelings and the thoughts and the sufferings of the same infirmities we have. But was in all points, again, not a few, not some, all points, tempted like as we are, yet without sin. Another very plain statement. There is no temptation that has come on you and me that he was not tempted with. I don't know why we have trouble understanding that except from Catholic and Protestant backgrounds because the Bible is very, very clear. Because of this, let us therefore come boldly to the throne of grace that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. It makes us bolder to understand that our high priest had the same temptations, the same difficulties that we have. Now, if he had walked the earth, just sort of come down as God and not been flesh then he could not have experienced it in the same way. But the fact that he was flesh and had human nature, he was able to be tempted just like we are. No difference. No different feeling. The desire to sin came to his mind daily. All day long. And he resisted daily. All day long. He stayed close to the Father. He did not quench the Spirit. And he had it in full measure, even as it is offered to us in full measure. He never quenched it the way we do. And therefore, we can come boldly saying, You felt what I feel. You suffered what I suffer. You wanted to do the things that I want to do sometimes. So I can come to you to ask for help and strength in time of need.
Let's go on to chapter 5. Let's begin in verse 1. For every high priest taken from among men is ordained for men in things pertaining to God, that he may offer both gifts and sacrifices for sins. So a high priest among men is put in that position as one to offer sacrifice, to one to offer help. But a human being can never be what Christ was, although he had been human. And that's the reason he has been made our high priest today, is that he had been human. And he offered himself as a sacrifice. Who can have compassion on the ignorant, and on them that are out of the way, for that he himself also is compassed with iniquity? Christ is a human being suffering to ultimately become our high priest in the heavens, had the same infirmities and difficulties we do. He wept. He was a man of sorrows. Direct quotes. By reason hereof, he ought also, as for the people, so also for himself to offer for sins. And no man takes this honor to himself, but he that is called of God, as was Aaron. So if you're going to be a high priest, you don't call yourself to that. God has to do that. So also Christ glorified not himself to be made a high priest. But he that said to him, You are my son, today have I begotten you. He looked to the Father. He said, The Father's good, I'm not. He said also in another place, You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek, who in the days of what? His flesh when he had offered up prayers and supplications with strong crying and tears unto him that was able to save him from death and was heard in that he feared God. The fear of God is the beginning of wisdom. Now, why did Christ offer prayers and supplications with crying and tears. Because he wanted to sin as badly as you and I have ever wanted to sin. He just never gave in. What an incredible example. Do you think that Christ approached his torment and persecution and suffering without fear, without needing support? Didn't he not even ask his disciples to come pray with him? And instead they went to sleep and he had to face it alone? Why? Read Luke 4. Did he fast 40 days and 40 nights without food or water before he had to face the temptation given by Satan the devil? He didn't just flippantly say, bring Satan on, I can fix him. No, he fasted 40 days and 40 nights because he knew the power of Satan and he knew he was human. 
and that he was subject to vanity and ego and pride. And those are the things that Satan tried to use on him. And it didn't work. Because those tendencies were brought under control in 40 days and 40 nights of fasting. So he did not give in to pride, ego, and self. But he had a major battle to be sure he was under control before Satan was turned loose on him. And he won. Now, if he was just God walking around on the earth, and he didn't have human nature, and the desire to sin, and the temptation to be proud and vain and egocentric and selfish like the rest of us, if he didn't have those things, why fast 40 days? If there was no real temptation and he could not have sinned, then why fast? Now, he and the Father had a pretty good idea that they could pull this off. Because it says he was slain before the foundations of the earth. They had already made up their mind that because of Satan's sin and the nature they were going to create man and woman with, that man would sin. And that Christ would have to come to this earth And under the same conditions that Adam and Eve lived under, and that we all do, his brethren, as it says here, he would live under the same conditions with the same temptations and never give in. He was under the conditions that would have allowed sin. But he called upon the spirit of he who was still good, and the power of that spirit of God so that he would not give in to temptation and sin. We have to admit that the possibility existed. The conditions were right to cause him to do it. And he could have chosen it under those conditions. But he made full use of the Spirit of God and never gave in. Yes, we can say he never sinned and therefore we can be God. But we are diminishing his sacrifice and who he was and what he did a great deal when we begin to say that, well, he wasn't tempted like we are, in spite of the very plain statement that we've read several times here. Let's go on down just a little bit more. Crying in tears, he offered... And God was able to save him from death. Eternal death. He didn't save him from physical death, did he? He died, not for his sin, but ours. And was heard in that he feared. Though he were a son, though he was and had been or became the son of God walking the earth, yet, he's giving a statement of condition here. Yes, He had been at the Father's right hand. And he gave up immortality to come to this earth and be subject to death, to be a flesh-born person. Yet learned he obedience by the things which he suffered. Christ suffered how? With temptation. Temptation is what makes you suffer. 
If you weren't tempted, you wouldn't have to suffer. It is the desire to be selfish, to sin, that brings suffering. It's what causes the hurt. If you had no temptation to sin, where would be the hurt? Where would be the resistance that's required? If he didn't have that same resistance, then it diminishes him as Savior. And being made perfect, he became the author of eternal salvation to all them that obey him. Called of God a high priest after the order of Melchizedek, of whom we have many things to say and hard to be uttered, seeing you are dull of hearing. It's hard for us to grasp what Paul is saying here. For when for the time you ought to be teachers, you have need that one teach you again the very first principles of God. Now, why is he discussing this and then making that kind of statement? Because there were those who denied that he came as flesh and blood and suffered temptation the same as we do. And that was alive in the days of Paul. It was alive in the days of John the Apostle. And it is still alive today. Those who deny that Christ had to be tempted and suffer just as we do. Let's see. First Peter 2, I think. I don't think I've been there yet. Let's just get a couple more. Let's see. Verse 21. For even hereunto were you called, because Christ also suffered for us, leaving us an example that you should follow his steps. How did he suffer? By resisting sin. Why did he have to resist it? Because he wanted to sin. That's quite simple, really. And he set an example of resistance and the suffering that comes from resistance that we should do as he does and have the same mind. Who did no sin, neither was guile found in his mouth. Who, when he was reviled, reviled not again. When he suffered, he threatened not, but committed himself to him that judges righteously. Who his own self bore our sins in his own body on the tree that we being dead to sins should live to righteousness by whose stripes you were healed. For you were as sheep going astray but are now returned to the shepherd and bishop of your souls. We can come boldly to the throne because he went through exactly the same thing we did. Uh, James 1. Uh, this is the one I was thinking of. Verse 12, <clears throat> James. Blessed is the man that endures temptation. For when he is tried, he will receive the crown of life, which the eternal has promised to them that love him. Let no man say, when he is tempted, I am tempted of God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, neither tempts he any man. God does not tempt us with sin. But Christ was tempted. He wasn't then tempted of God. So how was he tempted? 
Let's read on. But every man is tempted when he is drawn away of his own lust and enticed. Then when lust has conceived, it brings forth sin. And sin, when it is finished, brings forth death. So, God did not tempt Christ. And he was a man, flesh and blood. So then how was he tempted? Because it says clearly, and we've just read, he was tempted. He was tempted by his own desire. (coughs) By his own pulls. By his human nature. He was not half God and half man. He was all man, tempted in all points, and he was in the flesh, even as his brethren, completely and totally. The difference between you and me and Christ is that he called upon the fullness of the power and the Spirit of God day and night and resisted every sin known to you and me. All the commandments of God he wanted at one time or another and many times to break. Every last one of them. But the thought can come to mind. The desire, the temptation, can't speak. The temptation is not sin. It is when lust conceives and produces sin that it becomes sin. He was subject to everything that the eye, the ear, the nose, the mouth, the hand can feel or desire or want. He had five senses, just like us, no different. Do we grasp that? And all the more to his glory, let it be said he never gave in. We all have. If he had just been God walking the earth, what he did would not have been nearly so great as it is because he had to resist everything you and I are called upon to resist. And he's the only one who's ever walked the earth who was able to withstand that. When he said... No one is good but God. Why do you call me good? He meant what he said. He was not good by nature. His nature was to lie, to cheat, to steal, to commit adultery, fornication, to put himself above God's law, to commit idolatry. That was in his nature. That is why he had to fast 40 days and 40 nights to not give in to pride, vanity, and ego when Satan offered him the world or offered to save him if he jumped off the pinnacle of the temple or whatever. What he did was hard. Harder than anyone us but us can imagine. And the reason we can imagine it is because we're the same way. Now, I did not say he ever gave in to evil. Don't get me wrong. I did not say he ever sinned. Don't get me wrong. But I'm saying he had the same nature to want to sin 
You cannot be tempted unless you have a desire to do something you shouldn't do. That is what comprises temptation. Let us understand how great our Savior was. Not just in that He didn't sin, but the conditions under which He didn't sin. That makes it far more remarkable than if He had just come down and walked the earth as God. Now, he was in that condition when He came and talked to Paul. He had been raised up. He had been made immortal. And when he appeared to Paul, he was not any longer flesh in the desert of Arabia. He was spirit. And he no longer is tempted ever to sin. He was when he was flesh. Now he is not. The nature changed when he died. When he felt so forsaken, so alone. And you know what? God did forsake him. Even as the disciples forsook him. Because of my sins and yours. He was forsaken of God. And he died. He was raised up three days later. And that mortal put on immortality. He was the firstborn of many brethren. So even as his nature changed back to the nature of God and the temptation to sin is no longer a part of him, even so we, <clears throat> who are not good, there is not one good, no, not one, because our nature is to sin. That is not good. Even we who are converted partially and are trying not to sin have difficulty. Because our nature is to sin. That is what pulls us down. It's what causes our trouble, our strife, our resistance, our denial. When we rise from this earth, our nature will be changed. This mortal must put on immortality. And when we rise from this earth to meet Christ in the air to be His bride, our very nature will be changed and we will no longer ever, ever again be tempted to sin. What a relief that would be. That from then on, from that instant, we would never be tempted, we would never be discouraged, we would never be depressed, we would never be selfish, we would never do anything that we have wanted to do on this earth ever again that is wrong. It's hard to imagine. But let's give Christ and His Father credit where credit is due. He did not have human nature prior to coming to this earth. While He was here, He had it in every point, all points, like as we do. Now, being the firstborn of many brethren, he no longer has human nature. He has no desire to sin. He still has desire to marry, and he's going to. To us, if we qualify as bride, and we take on the nature of God and the resurrection, and have the same mind God has. 
In the meantime, we have a struggle to put on the same mind that Christ had, and that was never to sin. So what David wrote in Psalm 14.3 and in Psalm 53 was brought forward to the New Testament to us and was spoken of Christ himself. And that's why he told the young rich man, I am not good. He, by nature, was not good. And it is only by the power of the full measure of the Spirit of God that he resisted his nature and never sinned. I hope this puts an end to the argument about whether Christ was flesh and blood and subject to sin and temptation like as we are. Our Savior was a human being and he was the only one that never gave in and he is good again. Now, by his sacrifice, all of our mistakes, all of our sins, all of the failures that we have committed can be wiped away in his blood and thereby we also become perfect and take on the nature of God in the resurrection and sin will never be mentioned to us again. It will all be forgiven and wiped away in his death. Our human nature will go away, thankfully. And we'll never even want to sin again. Godspeed that day. Let's understand what it means when the psalmist says, There is none good, no, not one. As long as we're human, and as long as Christ was human, he was not good. Now he is, and we shall become good. And we will then have the worship and the adoration, because the wicked will become ashes under our feet if they do not repent, and we too will be worshipped. We are not worthy of it today, but we shall be. So let us push on and let us come to have the fervent love for each other that is the love of God, that he gave his only begotten Son, that we should not perish but have everlasting life.